gentlemen, this is an important message from the New York City Police Department. If you see a suspicious package or activity on the platform or train, do not keep it to yourself. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Hey everyone, I'm Ahmed al and this is M-Train, a six-part miniseries between Brick Radio and See Something, Say Something. Now, things have changed a lot with coronavirus, including our plans for this series. We are all isolated, quarantined in different places. I actually went back home to Michigan to be with my dad to kind of ride out the storm. So it's kind of changed our plans a little bit around the series. Um, So this episode, we're going to quickly talk to a doctor who's in New York City right now, who's going to help us understand stuff. And then we're going to bring you this delightful interview that we did with Asra Warda, who is a Moroccan rye dancer, about her work um, growing up in Brooklyn and her work teaching traditional dance around the city. So I'm joined by Ahmed Hossein. He's a MD, postdoctoral research fellow, and general surgery resident. Um, and he's currently working in New York City. Thanks for joining us, Ahmed. Thanks, Ahmed. Yep. <laughs> thanks, thanks uh, we have often yeah. talked about doing a podcast together, <laughs> Ahmed and Ahmed, um, which so far has not happened. I'm sorry. It's my fault completely. No, 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 no. It's all my fault. I take all the blame. I mean, it's because I, br- I bring the talent to the show. Oh, obviously. of course, of course. You, yeah, you know what I mean? Of course. You're too busy. You're too busy saving lives. <laughs> I'm too lives. busy. And You're I just saving lives. Yeah. On a personal level, let's just cut your work as a doctor outside. Like, how has life in New York City changed for you since, you know, this past month of corona, both governmental regulation and, like, societal shift? Like, what are you seeing as the differences? Um, that's a good question. So New York is, uh, New York, it's New York city, it's busy. Um, and there's just so much going on and probably for about the last two weeks or three weeks, New York has essentially like shut down progressively every week in the sense that now, uh, people aren't really going outside of their apartments. Uh, the only time that I've actually seen people going outside is mainly for like runs uh, and going to Central Park. I know that I've like that there's all these reports of people just kind of hanging out outside. But if if you're here, you notice that it's like significantly different. Like there's just nobody walking. There's nobody on the streets. There's no cars driving. You know, from a societal perspective, at least for me, I have been kind of at home for most of the time. I mean, I, I have some work that I got to go do. Uh, from a research perspective, that's that's kind of shut down uh, as of two days ago. Uh, and then I still have my clinical duties where I go see patients, um, and, and that continues. Um, but yeah. So are you taking the subway? Like, I haven't been on the subway since March 9th, almost two weeks. Um, so what is it like? Is it, like, completely empty? Like, Yeah. <laughs> It, it is it is it is dead I think like uh, I went to work uh, I took the a train about three days ago uh, eight o'clock nine o'clock in the morning uh, and it's usually packed you you're taking it uptown I think I was one of three people on the subway it's like eerie right very yeah. very quiet yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess like for people who you know I'm sure we've all done our reading but I think it's worth like establishing like 
what is the disease like corona coronavirus and what are some of the um ways in which like we can prevent the spread of the disease okay uh, so the disease essentially it is it is a virus this is a different type of virus it's called a coronavirus the problem is is that um it's a debilitating virus if you ever had like a cough runny nose like a fever sore throat or like just some congestion that can be the majority of the symptoms but in a small subset of those patients maybe like 20 percent, they get much more like respiratory distress or essentially what that means is that you can't breathe on your own you need extra oxygen support to help you breathe uh, and those patients end up needing to go to the hospital and then from those patients a significant portion actually ends up uh, unfortunately passing away um, from the disease so so what are the ways in which we can kind of prevent the spread of the disease? Um, so the, the, the disease, because it spreads so much between people, it's so contagious between people, the best way to kind of limit that uh, spread is this whole concept of social distancing, right? So everybody needs to be at home. Uh, you only need to go out uh, for kind of uh, uh, things that you need, like necessities, groceries, um, there's a shelter in place order in New York and it's kind of spreading all over. I think Washington and California have it now too. And, uh, which basically means that if you stay at home, you don't expose yourself to other people. Uh, you make sure that you wash your hands. You make sure that you're not getting within six feet of other people when you do interact with them. Uh, because with a virus is basically something that is usually, um, if you have it, it's, it's when you breathe on other people or cough or sneeze, uh, it can kind of be uh, coughed out and that can stay in the air and it can land on surfaces. And if you touch those surfaces uh, and then you interact or touch your face or, or rub your eyes or something like that, then you can actually end up getting the disease as well. So the most important thing is that to, you have to wash your hands as much as you can uh, whenever you get home, um, you know, wash your clothes and, and take every effort to um, minimize contact with other people if you don't need to. I hope everyone already knows that in a way, but you know it's worth establishing in case there's people <laughs> who are still like there's people who are still you know going out to on spring break in Florida or whatever. So, no, no, we all know. saw the videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, not good. <laughs> it's it is a strange time. It's an incredibly strange time. Like I myself have been in like I basically socially isolated as best as I can. But what is so interesting and kind of scary for a lot of us um, is that many of our family members are healthcare workers and still have to go in. And even if you are not uh, somebody who, say, for instance, does internal medicine or is an ER doctor, it's still changing your work and uh, life at the hospital. And that's happening to you right now, I think, um, as a surgical resident. So can you tell us a little bit about like what's changed for you? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, so I mean, most of my work now is focused on research, um, and that at the moment at the hospital is suspended indefinitely for at least a month for anybody that does research that isn't associated with uh, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I also see patients, clinical patients, when I go into the hospital for part of my other job. Um, and from that perspective, we are canceling all of elective surgery. Uh, so basically anything that isn't considered urgent um, or emergent is not going forward because we're anticipating such a large 
influx of patients that are going to be needing to use the hospital and hospital resources and hospital personnel, doctors, nurses, whether they're surgeons or anesthesiologists or whatever, everybody's going to be kind of relocated to the parts of the hospital that are focused on this large influx of patients, which, as you can tell, obviously, it's, I mean, it's, it's extremely concerning, right? Because there's other problems that don't stop just because this virus is in place, right? I mean, if you have a kidney stone, for instance, that kidney stone is still there and it still needs surgery. But um, if there's not enough resources to take care of everybody, that's the concern. So we're trying to dampen everything else down that's not significant or not urgent and then uh, managing our resources in the best way that we can. We're really just waiting for um, the influx of all of these COVID-19 patients that are supposed to be coming in. So it's um, March 23rd right now, Monday. So you're telling me like you're not a medical resident, you're a surgical resident. But you, what you're saying is basically like it's kind of the calm before the storm. Like there's actually not that many cases yet for you or what, what's the kind of situation in terms of um, like what the hospitals are feeling like right now? The hospitals, I mean, the hospitals really are feeling a significant strain I'm a surgical resident, so I don't really deal with any of the medical patients that would be coming in with these respiratory problems, with COVID-19 problems, and needing to be intubated and uh, putting on ventilators. I don't necessarily have to deal with that. But all of my colleagues that are doing that are feeling the strain, and the ICUs are you know, increasing in their census, and the number of patients in the hospitals are increasing. I was talking to... Um, some of my friends that are in Michigan and in one hospital, basically they needed to use a ventilator for some patients. Uh, they intubated about 15 patients uh, overnight uh, in one specific hospital. Uh, here in New York, all of our ORs, it basically we have two, two floors, a third floor and a fourth floor that, have, uh, that are full of ORs and they all have ventilators. One of those floors has completely become an ICU for COVID-19 patients. So, so right for somebody now, who's like never is... seen an intubation, I think what's kind of strange, like people don't really understand what that means. It's pretty, it's a pretty like, what, tell, tell me what an intubation is. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, so an intubation is if you have an infection of your lungs, there is an increased strain on your lungs to, uh, to breathe. So they need more oxygen. At a certain point, what's happening, at least with this disease, what we're seeing is that it's causing a significant amount of injury to the lungs that you just generating the pressure necessary to inhale oxygen isn't there. So what they're doing is we just basically put a, a, a tube into your trachea and that tube is connected to a machine that pushes air into your lungs. And that's called being intubated and that machine is called a ventilator. And that's generally what it does. It just gives your lungs the oxygen that it needs because it can't generate the force to pull that oxygen by itself. And as you can imagine, having a tube into your lungs is very, it's not, it's, it's not very it's fun. Not, it's, not it's, not, it's not, no. Like, yeah, no, it's not fun. <laughs> Usually the patient is sedated or, right? Like, or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually like the out, patient basically. is sedated. Yeah, they're out. Uh, obviously we do it because we need to, but it's not how you would want to be able to breathe. Right, right. Okay, so going back to the current situation in the hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, you know, so at the moment, I, I think from, from our hospital, really we've set up new tents outside the hospital. Most of the, the hospitals in New York City are basically just setting up triage tents to see patients that are coming in um, and make determinations of whether they need to be admitted to the hospital or not. Um, and 
I think within the the prediction, at least in New York City, which is the epicenter I, of, of this problem, at least in the United States. And I think at the moment we have like 5% of all COVID patients or, or, or like patients that are having this disease are actually coming up in New York. The idea is that within the next 20 to 30 days, uh, we are going to see a massive influx of these patients because the patients that get the disease, usually they don't have any symptoms for up to a week or up to 10 days. So you can feel fine today. Uh, and in, in a week from now, uh, you would need to be admitted to the hospital. Either you would need to be admitted to the hospital just to, to give you extra oxygen, or you would need to be admitted to the hospital and then be placed on a ventilator and then given extra treatments. Uh, so that peak is supposedly coming. And at the moment, even for me as a surgical resident, uh, there's a potential that I will be pulled into these other services because other doctors aren't uh, able to take care of these patients. We don't have the right gear. We don't have the right masks. Uh, we don't have the right gowns. Uh, and if your doctors are getting sick, other doctors are going to need to step in uh, who aren't experts, at least in, in kind of pulmonology. But, but we're making do. So that's what we're all waiting for. Right. So I think one thing that you were also telling me about was having to explain to your father um, how serious this is and why we should take it seriously. I think there's a lot of, um, at least in our generation, like we're all like arguing with our boomer parents to stay inside. Tell us about talking to your dad. Like what was his thought on, on it and how did you kind of convince him that to take it seriously? So my dad actually lives in Egypt where the situation in Egypt, I think, there's not as as much urgency there. The media isn't necessarily as concerned. I think people are more just kind of lackadaisical about about the approach. I think the younger population understands it, but there's this feel, uh, at least in the community, and I, and I think this kind of extends overall. You know, when I when I talk to him, that this is more or less kind of like an other qadar situation. Uh, you know what I mean? We do our part, but uh, whatever is happening is going to happen. And we just kind of have to live our lives as is. And what I think my dad didn't really understand is that if you don't take these measures to significantly decrease the exposure that every person has, the, the growth is just exponential in how many people can be exposed. And when I finally explained to my dad uh, that essentially the hospitals won't be able to take care of patients that they naturally or should be able to because at a certain point you're going to have two patients that are sick and you only have enough tools to treat one of them. So you have to pick as the physician or the nurse or as the healthcare team which of those two patients you have to, you have to treat. And if you get to that point, I mean, that is a point that nobody ever wants to be in. I mean, you're choosing who gets to, to live or die, essentially. And I think kind of when I explained it to him in that perspective is that, you know, yes, this is a new problem. Yes, whatever's going to happen is what's going to happen. But we can decrease the impact on the healthcare system um, by just decreasing the amount of exposure that people overall have uh, to the disease. Then hospitals won't have to make that choice. They'll be able to treat everybody that comes in. Uh, and I think that got through to him. Uh, I'll have to call him again and see what he says. I don't know. He well, might it's be kind traveling of, now. 
<laughs> well, it's kind of funny because it's like <laughs> this this other thing that you're describing, like the predestination. I feel like like the Muslim parents that I've spoken to are like that Russian guy in Rocky Four, where they're like, "If I die, I die." <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> appears to be in very serious condition. The man If he dies, he dies. It's like whatever. Like it doesn't yeah. make it doesn't matter to me. Like if that's in my yeah, fate, yeah. I, I die. Um, but yeah. then like there's this broader societal thing about like putting doctors in a in a you know our strategy in America has been what flattened the curve as opposed to like this severe shutdown quarantine thing that happened in Wuhan, uh, China, where you know the the first outbreak happened. Um, which is, you know, more about uh, societal responsibility, like our responsibility to each other, which I do feel like is like a Muslim concept. It's been interesting to see like people like post like hadith and stuff about why you should not go to Jummah, why you should stay at home. Yeah, and I think that does kind of make sense. Uh, but it's been a challenge, definitely, I think, explaining to our parents. I'm, you know, my dad is like you going into the hospital sometimes for emergency surgeries only. And I only today, um, you know, convinced him to wear a mask. Uh, he hadn't been wearing any protective gear, really. He was like, what's the big deal? Um, even though he knows it's a big deal, you know? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Um, you know, most people, I, I, most people I, I don't know if they... They don't necessarily feel for themselves, but they definitely fear for their families and they feel for their uh, friends and loved ones. So if you kind of paint it in that aspect, I think people are more likely to respond and react in a way that helps society as a whole. On a personal note, um, I think another thing that has sort of changed for us is that we always basically like go to Juma every week together, us and our friends. And it's like kind of surreal how, uh, you know, Juma is like not, doesn't even feel like an option, you know, and I have no idea when I'll be going back again. Um, how are you kind of like processing that? It, it, it's so strange. Like I, 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 this week I did a virtual Juma um, and then I just got up and I, and I prayed the horror by myself. I listened to a khutbah and I prayed the horror for myself. And usually at that point, like we, we all get together and then, you know, it's the time of the week where we all see our friends and we just make sure everybody's doing okay and we catch up. Um, uh, and it, and it feels, and it feels different. And honestly, it's really important, I think, for everybody to just remember that their mental health is, is just as important as their physical health. And uh, to reach out to friends, to reach out to family, to make sure that you're doing things to basically stay sane. And, and if you're able to exercise, that's very important. Um, it, but at the same time, it's like I, I think this week I also had a, a birthday party that we we did over Google Hangouts. You know what I mean? So it's <laughs> it's like it was just it was it was like it was bizarre. But but at the same time, it felt great because we all just caught up and it was wonderful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Strange times. Again, thank you so much for working during this time and for joining the show, Ahmed. Um, where can people follow you on the internet? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just at Ahmed Hossein. Uh, that's where you'll find me. All right, thanks, man. See you soon, hopefully. Yeah, man. Thank you, thank you. Right. Stay safe. You too. Bye.
Earlier, before all this COVID stuff, we interviewed Astra Warda, who teaches Moroccan dance. Um, she's from Brooklyn, and you know, sort of like the challenges around uh, being a dancer, being a teacher, being a performer, and also like the joy of it and like kind of decolonizing it. Of course, this was a very different time. Um, we were actually booked to go into a studio. The studio wasn't available. Um, so we had to find a place. We wandered outside. We wandered around, you know, uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, uh, Dumbo area, uh, trying to find a quiet place. And we walked into a room with a bunch of strangers, asked them to be quiet. Uh, they kind of shuffled out. Uh, and we actually did this interview outside. You can hear like helicopters and, and people moving around kind of. Um, and it was kind of, you know, obviously very beautiful, you know, looking around Brooklyn Bridge. Feels like a different time with the self-isolation and self-quarantine from coronavirus. Um, but we still wanted to share that interview, that joy of it, you know, the very interesting work that uh, Astra does. And, uh, you know, just sort of think back to these days when we can go outside again. So please, let, take a listen and enjoy. My name is Isra Warda. I am a uh, traditional dancer and teaching artist of Moroccan and Algerian dance styles. So Isra, can you tell us about um, how we met today? How did we end up where we are? So we're literally inside of a <laughs> bubble, like in near uh, the Brooklyn Bridge Park, um, because we needed somewhere to film to catch me in the short time that I had to, uh, to spare. I'm traveling soon. And we went around walking all around downtown Brooklyn in this airport, this hipster airport that we call Dumbo. Uh, and we found a really fancy restaurant that literally has chairs inside of a f bubble, like a plastic dome bubble. So now we're in a bubble. So you describe yourself as a teacher of uh, Moroccan and Algerian dance styles. Um, can you describe like what kind of dance you teach? The dance styles that I um, do are what we call popular dance styles. So the two styles that I do the most, just to kind of minimize it, the ones that I practice the most are uh, Shabi from Morocco and Rai from Algeria. It's inspired from Bedouin poetry and Rai music now is kind of like what we call rebel music. It's music mm. where um, a lot of marginalized Algerians have found a voice to talk about um, you know, things about like life, love, sex, alcohol, like all the kind of haram things you can't talk about in daytime. Rai is kind of like the scene where everything kind of goes. And it's also a place where like people experiment with their sexuality and their gender expression. Um, we call it like the rebel groove of mm -hmm. Algeria. So you're originally a New Yorker, right? Yes. You were born and raised. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about the community you came from? I, I'm one of those people Honestly, I've never identified as an American. Mm. I grew up very Algerian. Arabic, Derija, was Algerian Arabic is my first language, my maternal language. Nobody in my family speaks like English, really. We all still speak Derija. We preserve our traditions and our cooking traditions, and our language traditions. Um, so I grew up kind of in a bubble in Brooklyn. And then I had a chance to travel a lot to Algeria as a young person. But I, I definitely just call myself Algerian, New Yorker, because I do feel like I'm one of the very rare special child of immigrants who isn't stuck between two mm -hmm. things. Like, oh, am I American or am I this? I'm very proudly like Algerian 
I, I grew up in, in Bay Ridge, but the thing is, is um, I never hung out in Bay Ridge. I okay, always tried okay. to leave Bay Ridge. I really, and I'm sorry for my Bay Ridge people, but I, um, I really like ha- resented it a lot because, you know, I didn't get to have that like fun experiment stuff when you're a kid. It was just most of my parents being afraid that I was going to be a hoe, like, but but that's really what it is. No, your, your parents yeah, uh-huh. are like. Well, that's universal, I think. That's universal. Um, like you're afraid you come to America and you're going to be a slut. Situation. Yeah. yeah. That's like your biggest fear. You're going to be a slut. But the jokes on them, you know, because I end up being a slut anyway. But, <laughs> but, but but you know, whatever. Um, I can't wait to get into that. But <laughs> I I, I want to know first, like, how did you how did you learn to dance? Yeah. And, like, for somebody who has never seen any of these dance yeah. styles, how would you describe them? I learned this dance actually from my family, very informally, um, 10 or 11 years old when I first started going to Algeria. I just would watch people and emulate them. It's just simple as that. I don't know. And then I discovered a talent very young. And people used to invite me out to weddings and be like, yo, come see our cousin who lives in New York. Yo, like, she danced better than all y'all. <laughs> like, you know, and it was crazy because I, I learned from my aunts. And I always say, like, my prototype, my vision of who I want to be is, like, my grandmas and aunties from Algeria with, like, saggy boobs, big bellies, wearing aprons all the time. Their fingers smell like vinegar and fish. Like, that's those are my idols, you know? That's who I embody when I dance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Honestly, I think that's the gender on its own. Like, big belly, in your business, you know, wearing aprons, cooking food all day, you know, never wears a bra auntie is like a gender on its own. You know what I mean? They inspire people. So I think that's like a common scenario for a lot of immigrant kids, even though you're describing that you've like been um, very close to your identity throughout. I've been at ease with it. Right. Yeah. But you've also taken it to this next level where you, um, I think, consider it also to be political. Yeah. And you also consider it to be something um, that you want to teach other folks. So can you tell us about your pedagogy? Can you tell us about how you teach dancing and what you teach people about these styles of dancing? My pedagogy is based around like not learning set choreographies because a lot of teachers do that where they're like here's a song and I'm gonna teach you how to dance to every single beat on this song what I do is I help you repeat and upload and download you know absorb movements into your body by repeating um, certain movement vocabulary so you could learn how to mix and match and improvise on your own and a lot of time I give people space to make a circle and, and improvise with each other because that's the way that we learned. Right. right? It's so a kind I, of communication yeah. in a way, yeah. dancing. It's community. It's learning how to use community to help you, help your body remember and absorb movement. That's right. not, maybe not yours that you grow, grew up with. Right. A very strong point for me is that I teach in neighborhoods um, that are marginalized neighborhoods. So I teach in the Bronx. I teach in Harlem, East Harlem, and I teach in Bed-Stuy mostly. Sometimes Lower East Side. And that's really important to me because I, I want my classes to be accessible to people of color, firstly and mostly. And my class is usually mostly women of color. My, my thing is centered around not being elite. It's just people going crazy. It's a frenzy. I like frenzy. I like people feeling like they can come to a class and have a dance orgasm. You know, <laughs> that's kind of like yeah. my thing, uh-huh. like a release. It's a, I like having a release um, and pushing people kind of to the edge a little bit. Moroccan Shabi or Shabi Maghribi or Algerian Rai 
the two similarities between them is that they use a lot of hip and booty shaking. And I'm not really saying that like in a mocking way. I'm being really serious <laughs> that um, Rai is kind of like smooth steps. It's kind of like Kazumba. A lot of people don't know what Kazumba is, but it's kind of like swaying left to right very slowly, isolating your hips and then adding shimmies in your butt and your hips, right? And Shabby is also adding shimmies and shakes in your butt and your hips, but it's more gallopy. It has a horse vibe. It has a symbolism of horses. So you're stomping and galloping around. You're flipping your hair back and forth. Um, so those are the two differences between them. Now, the butt shaking, there's a discussion around, like, butt shaking. Mm. There are some teachers who believe focusing on the booty shakes in some North African dance styles, not all of them have booty shakes, but a good amount of them do. That focusing on that essentially is saying that like we are you know hyper sexualizing ourselves and making ourselves exotic and making something sexual that's not supposed to be sexual and for me i completely disagree with that i think that like the reason why we've stigmatized butt shaking so much is for like religious and cultural and societal reasons why because when you think about it a butt is just part of your anatomy and we've added that sexual connotation to a butt now Traditionally, there's a lot of butt shaking in rye music and shabby music. And for me, I'm all about reproducing tradition. I like the way my ancestors did it. I like to, I like to dance like the way people danced hundreds of years before me. And for me, it's like, why remove something or why um, stigmatize something as part of our culture in order to try to be more classy and try to clean it up? If, you, if you're saying, let's remove the butt shaking, to clean it up then you're admitting that our culture is dirty people's dances shabby dances get criticized because they're from poor people they're from rural people countryside folks people who just want to have fun and have no money in their pockets like you know people of all sizes and stuff like that like which i think is purely colonial the, the fact that we want to clean up dances that come from people because we want to fit we want to be classy and the thing is is like whose definition of classy are we trying to fit like mm -hmm. are we trying to take shabby or rye and then try to put it in a framework of ballet like that's their framework this is our framework like booty shaking just like booty shaking is a part of twerking and that's one part of black culture and it shouldn't be stigmatized it just is what it is what are your feelings about the white people who take an interest in the style of dancing either they're like people who are paying you know 60 bucks mm -hmm. to go watch it at bam or they're taking belly dancing classes yeah. like what do you do in those circumstances because i'm sure you encounter those folks quite often i mean Dance classrooms are also just micro microcosms of society. So there there is power dynamics in a, in a learning space. And I think that it's no surprise that white people are the people who have most the most accessibility to learning cultural dances and and yoga and all these things. Um, and they're also the ones who take take it over the most, right? So for me I'm I'm I create boundaries. I create boundaries where like you are welcome here and as long as you're respectful, you will always be welcome here. However, this isn't yours to dominate. You know, like I am going to put my, I'm in the position of preserving my stuff and you need to know where your place is. You know what I mean? And for me, my classroom is I try to kind of address the typical issues that we have in, in North Africa, particularly in Algeria, which is like anti-blackness is a big one. Um, so I make sure that like black folks in general feel like they're respected and highlighted in my class, right? That they don't feel like they're invisible or they feel like, they don't feel like my class is like whitewashed. Well, the other thing about it, like speaking of anti-blackness is also this like, 
trend towards, or maybe favor towards, white belly dancers and a lot of oh, performing yeah. or light-skinned belly dancers. I mean, oh, yeah. that is, like, a huge uh, criticism that I've seen coming yeah. out of, like, um, North African and Arab writers. Yep. Um, so, like, you know, obviously when you have a student, you know, you you probably have to think about the the responsibility towards training them to not reproduce those those kind of um, systems of, you know, yeah. uh, white supremacy. Well, the way I feel like white supremacy plays out in in the dance in my experience because my experience is a little different because my industry is so new different than belly dance um what ends up happening is that a lot of people of color come and they're genuinely interested in investing and learning in this culture right they want to learn about the music they want to learn about where it comes from they want to go to the country where it comes from they want to learn how it's how it's done within the community of origin and sometimes i notice that a lot of white women just want to consume they just want to pay $50, learn these couple of moves, and say that they know it. I know there's definitely that big difference between it. And I think, I do think a lot of white folks come from a place where they want to use dance and culture as a way for, like, social capital. You know, they want to say, oh, I studied with this person. You know, I learned this thing. So how do you envision um, dance as a platform for different social issues? I've really discovered that dance, even though it's not one of the most like radical things you could do, like I'm not like, you know, you know, fighting cops on the street or something or doing some like Chiquivada type shit, but like in a way it addresses a lot of different social issues. A lot of us don't know the difference between religion and culture and tradition. They were all mush them all as, as one big thing. And actually, those things are all three separate things. And I think that, like, we often, and I also think as a product of colonialism as well, that we have, like, pre-packaged identities. So you're from this country in between these two borders. So that means you like this kind of music, and this means that this you're this religion, and that means you like your president, and you love your government, and you love your flag, and all of these things combined. So you're, like, pre-made already. Well, I think maybe what, what it kind of relates to the thing you were saying earlier about colonialism and like how, like when a lot of colonists came, for instance, I can only speak about India and Pakistan, they wanted to categorize people. Oh, yeah. Muslims act like this. This is what Muslims exactly. do without like, for instance, having the full range of expression of like, yeah. you know, like well, Muslims don't drink, yeah. Hindus do, you know, and then, but without, you know, while forgetting that like the Muslim court like wine was flowing everywhere yes. like you know our poetry was filled with that stuff so. and, th and that brings me back to really talking about fluidity in identity and tradition but then like through this dance i've really discovered and also allowed the opportunity to highlight that north african people are very uh have multi-dimensions you can't it's like trying to put people in two categories is essentially like trying to take an ocean and try to put them in two cups So what are some of the ways in which you have used dance to 
insert yourself into conversations around, um, you know, politics and, uh, you know, use it as a social platform to discuss, you know, like a variety of issues. So the, the main things are, uh, one of the main things is about body and, and freedom of movement. That's one. And a lot of it is for the diaspora. A lot of it, a lot of my audience are North Africans in the diaspora who have, who've like felt liberated, right? Liberated away from the stigma that dancing is shameful. And that's a really big thing for us, you know, especially going back to the booty shaking, how like we're being shamed for shading, shaking our booties. So I think it's about just like empowering our own communities that like there's no shame in moving and even the way that you want to move doesn't even need to be like shaking or shimmying or anything like that if you're not comfortable. But there is a lot of shame that we grew up with around um, around dancing. I sort of want to know like also the way in which you relate to um, broader conversations about ma- like dance as yeah. a performance, not just like communities, but also like what is art, right? Like is is um, this these kind of traditional forms of of dance considered? Uh, real dance by like a place okay. like BAM, you know? So I came into this this artistic path, but also like career, right? Not thinking or searching for any validation from anyone else. I wasn't like, oh, I want to teach at Gibney. Oh, I want to teach at, you know, I want to perform at BAM. I don't need any of those things. I'm completely happy without it. My thing is more about, I want to build the infrastructure and the institutional respect for this dance within my people within my community that's most important now what i mean by community it's not always people who are the same ethnic background for at this point like community is whoever wants to be part of your community that's what my community is right so i i i I don't need you know institutions to validate me as an artist what these big like predominantly white institutions do is they just they they really want people like me working for them because they want to expand their diversity they want to make it seem like they're being more inclusive but what they really do is what they're squeezing us into their framework and for me i'm very much functioning in my own framework Mm -hmm. you know i'm very much like i don't need a seat at your table because i have my own table and we gonna sit in our own table over here and in terms of like more well-respected like quote well-respected Um, art forms like contemporary dance and ballet those are kind of like what real dancers do when you say you're a dancer usually those are those are art forms that have career paths those are ones that are like uh, institutionalized uh, you know respectable quote respectable ways to be a dancer but for me I'm trying to make popular dances of people into respectable dances what our definition of respectable is not like ballet level respectable right. like our, our level of respectable is that we respect our ancestors and we have fun and you know we dance the way we've been taught to dance and just not just make up shit you know like respect the technicality of right. of what we do right traditions always have yeah. a Rules traditions and, and have their rules, own their yeah. own their own background and history. Yeah. I mean, I so I criticize tradition on a social level, but when it comes to technique level, I don't. I'm very very much like rigid when it comes to that. Right, that's interesting. I want to know what some of those technique, what those some of those traditional Booty rules shaking. are. 
<laughs> booty shaking is a traditional technique? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a traditional well, technique well, okay, passed I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something that's going to blow your mind right now. I really, for example, in the Rai, there's a style of Rai called Gazbarai, which essentially is Rai music that's usually with a very long wood fl- wooden flute that sounds very raspy and it gives that kind of raw sexual energy to it. Most North African music is what we call polyrhythmic, which means that it has multiple different rhythms playing at the same time, which is why it's so confusing for white people most of the time. Traditionally speaking, the best way to actually be um, a proper traditional rye dancer is that you dance each rhythm. Let's say there's four rhythms playing at the same time. You dance each rhythm on your body at the same time. So what that means is that you isolate different parts of your body and assign them to each drum. And your body is going four different ways at the same time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that, for me, is something that's really important. That's, I, don't, I don't play with that. That makes me very happy because I'm somebody who has some sense of rhythm but tr- mm-hmm. struggles to just even do the one body yeah. together. I mean, it's coordination. It's, it's splitting up your body. Yeah. And it's like drumming, actually. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever played a drum set, yeah. you know, the one of the hardest things is learning how to play Two the snare drum and the bass drum and the hi-hat with yeah. your d- four and different And then you're limbs. just doing that with your body. Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm really rigid when it comes to that. I, I don't fusion. I don't like doing fusion stuff. I don't like, <laughs> you know, I know it's kind of limiting, but um, there's other people who can do fusion stuff. For me, I'm very like, this is the way I learn and I'm sticking with it. The dance industry uh, highlights a lot of like thin, tall, white bodies, and um, that's their infrastructure, right? Our actual infrastructure is different. Like a lot of people who dance these dances are like people who are of bigger size. And when I mean bigger size, I don't mean like you know what we what we like is bigger size like small waist and big boobs and whatever like people who have bellies you know people who have big broad shoulders you know like this is our roots i always want to reassure that just because there is this um this uh norm this white norm that we have to look white in all the forms of whatever that is it doesn't mean that in my classroom we follow that So before we go, where can people find your dancing? So you can follow me at at Warda Dance. It's spelled uh, like war, D-A, Warda, dance, all one word. Um, I teach mostly in the Bronx, the Sweetwater Dance and Yoga Studio. Uh, I teach uh, at the Africa Center in East Harlem. I teach at the Center for African and Diaspora Dance in Bed-Stuy. And sometimes I have pop-up series in Lower East Side, but you can always keep updated on Instagram to see where I'm at next. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted and produced by me, Ahmed Al-Yakbar, and Shireen Barhi. It is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham and Sasha Mathias. Follow me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. Follow See Something, Say Something on Twitter and Facebook at See Something. And follow Brick on Twitter at BrickTV. This episode featured music composed by Mira Al-Rahim and from Freesound. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit BrickArtsMedia.org radio. 
See Something, Say Something is on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash Thanks to our patrons, Ted Delphos, Stacey Murray Ishmael, Malice T, Mo D, Remy Carroll, and Mustafa Nusrati for supporting the show. I'm Amadal Yakber. Thanks for listening. Yeah,